When you meet someone, do you wonder about their story? If you're like me, you're always interested in the lives, hopes, and dreams of people. Stories Connect People podcast will bring you interesting, inspiring, and compelling stories from people just like you and me. Stories that will inspire you. They'll make you laugh. You'll learn. They might even make you cry. But above all, you will feel connected and closer to the people around you. You may see yourself in these stories. You may feel connected because you share similarities in your own journey. There are rich, interesting stories closer than you think, maybe even yours. Thank you for listening to Stories Connect People. I am Polly Van Duzer, your host. My guest today on Stories Connect People podcast is Amy Barfield with Family Haven. Amy found her calling to help others very early in her life. Today, she is the Executive Director of Forsyth County Family Haven, an organization that supports victims of abuse. What if you found yourself in an abusive relationship or a family or friend was in an abusive relationship? Would you have the courage to leave? Would they have the courage to leave? Abuse comes in many forms, physical abuse, financial abuse, verbal and emotional abuse, just to name a few. Abuse is about control. Amy shares that victims generally go back seven times before they fully break from an abusive relationship. The why to stay or why to leave is different for everyone. Amy shares the great work her organization is doing to advocate, educate, shelter, and support victims of abuse. They even have programs to educate teens about what a healthy relationship looks like. Teen dating violence is very common. Amy and her team are making a difference in the community by helping others get the tools, courage, confidence, and resources to make decisions for their family that will likely change their life. Welcome, Amy, to Stories Connect People podcast. Hello, Amy. How are you today? Welcome to Stories Connect People podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good, thank you. So, Amy, I want to say thank you for all the work that you're doing for others through your organization, Family Haven, and we're going to talk about that. But um, just as we're starting out, Stories Connect People podcast focuses on people who are doing great things for their community or to make the, the world a better place. And the work that you are doing is so meaningful and touches people at probably one of the most important and maybe one of the lowest times in their life. And you're really helping them to be able to get their life back on track. And so I'm going to have you talk about that. But first, let me share how we are connected. Um, So I attend Shambly First United Methodist Church, and our United Methodist Women's Group has been a supporter of Family Haven for years. And so I'll give a shout out to Jennifer Tehand, who I know 
works closely with you as an as a liaison between our women's groups and um, our church and your organization. And we make donations and um, help to provide some of the things that you need there for your families. And so I'll just uh, say again, thank you to Jennifer. So Amy, before we dive into Family Haven, uh, why don't you just share a little bit about you and your background and maybe, um, you know, a little bit before you started with Family Haven and what got you to where you are today? So I think my love for serving others started at the age of 12. Oh, well. I was a volunteer for the American Red Cross in Macon. And my first volunteer job was teaching disabled children and adults how to swim. Really? And it was that summer that in the small pool out behind the Red Cross in Macon um, that I met some amazing people that taught me a whole lot more than I taught them how to swim. Oh, Amy, that's beautiful. So at that point, solidified in, for me that my job as a person was to help others and to do what I can to make somebody else's life a little easier. And I have lived with that passion my whole life. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Macon, Georgia. Okay. So how long have you been with Family Haven and what did you do um, before that? Have you been in other positions and and came to a Family Haven over the years or uh, have you been here a while? So I have been with Family Haven for two and a half years. And prior to that, when I first um, got out of college and got married, um, my husband and I were moved from Athens to to the Atlanta area and we lived, we moved to Forsyth County because we were um, just out of school and needed, we didn't have the funds to be able to, the income to be able to live down near where his office was. And so we were here in Forsyth, so we found a place in Forsyth County and that was the best thing that could have happened to me and my family. When we first moved here, we had a little girl and I needed to find a job. And so my first job here in Forsyth County was with um, Midway United Methodist Church. And I served as their director of their Fun Kids program, which was a after school and summer program for children between the ages of four through middle school. And it was to serve as a ministry, first and foremost, to the children and the families of the community. And I did that for 13 years. And after that, I served as a special ed um, para in a related para for Forsyth County Schools. And I wanted to see if if I wanted to go back and get my teaching certificate. And I didn't. It didn't work out. Um, I have three children of my own. And by this point, they're working on going to college. I could see three stepping stones into college. And I thought there's no way I can go back to school myself and get my teaching certificate. And so then I ended up here at, at Family Haven. And I've been here two and a half years. 
Well, you have had a history of serving others for a long time, and it's great to see you found that um, that uh, calling early in your life. That's great. Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about Family Haven, um, just to set the stage for us, and then we will, um, you know, deep dive into that a little bit more in terms of um, just some of the work that that you all do and um, the support that you provide to, I guess, women and children mainly. Um, but talk a little bit just overall about the organization. So, Forsyth County Family Haven is a nonprofit that serves victims of domestic violence and their families. We serve as an advocate um, to victims and we offer emergency shelter, legal advocacy, counseling, and case management to help clients navigate um, to their through their journey to survivorship. And how do they learn about how do they learn about your organization? Are they Did they learn about you through ministry or uh, just doing research or what do you see? So I think a lot of times they are, um, we rely on our law enforcement officers when they go to domestic violence calls to make an abuse victim aware that we, that there are services and resources available. Um, Your doctor's. Um, are good. Your pastors are good at at helping a, a victim find these resources. We also work with other agencies throughout the state to be able to place clients. So there are various ways you can find out about Family Haven, including our national, uh, there's a national hotline and you can tell them the area that you're in and they will put you in touch with the appropriate shelter. So is Family Haven a national organization and you all are a local chapter or a local local site? No, but we do work with um, other shelters throughout the state. So we are local um, in our own entity, but we do partner with other shelters throughout the state. Okay, I'm going to come back to that because I did I did want to talk to you about, you know, if someone's not in your area, you know, how, um, you know, what might they do to find help locally or be able to, you know, uh, volunteer or support an organization like yours um, in their own region. So we'll come to we'll come back to that in. Um, so um, you did a high level um, overview of Family Haven and some of the the, you know, the advocacy work and, and what you will offer. Can you talk about it a little more in depth? And, you know, why is it, you know, when the, when the family or a um, woman or a family comes to your organization for support, like, what does that look like for them? So the first thing they do is call our crisis line. And through the crisis line, they, they, that's the first step. And they talk to an advocate. And during that um, conversation, they do an assessment. And then we determine if we have space for that for that family. Um, we we are limited in the number of beds we have available, so sometimes we are not able to to um, take in a family. 
Um, sometimes it might be that they need resources that we can't provide. Um, sometimes it's it's more medical versus just leaving the situation. So we do put them in contact with, with somebody who can help them with those needs. Um, we have, and then sometimes it's not okay for them to be, to go to an emergency shelter that is right in their area based on the lethality of their situation. So we have to look at that too and their safety. Because one of the things we want to ensure is that when you come into shelter, you are safe. So if you're coming into a shelter that is a few minutes down the road from where you live, chances are you're not going to change your daily patterns. Going to the same grocery store, riding the same streets, going to the same target, those are all places that your abuser may know to look. And so we want to make sure that you are in the safest place possible. And so sometimes we have to take that assessment and make help with the client decide that they need to look in a different area. And then we would advocate for them in a different area. Yeah, that's such a good point about the about being safe when they come to you and that if they don't change, you know, significantly change their location, they might just fall into the same um, habits, you know, of going to the, the same places and be more easily found. So that's really interesting that, um, you know, how you help uh, them evaluate that. Well, and the, the other thing is, is we have to keep in mind too, that the most dangerous time for a victim is when they make the decision to leave because abuse is about power and control. And once you have decided to leave and you have decided that you are not going to to live with that in that abusive situation anymore, you have taken all control away from the abuser. And they don't typically handle that very well. So we um, those are it's very important that when they come to shelter that we know that they're in the safest place possible. And what do you typically find is the reason that someone, you know, gets the courage to break free? Is it education? Is it more awareness? Uh, you know, the just, you know, fear of being, you know, hurt or the children hurt? Is, are there a couple of things that stand out in terms of, you know, they're ready to break the cycle? So I would say a lot of the things that we see, because we see all of those things, everybody has a different reason why or a different push to leave their situation. And so we may have clients that come to us because they realize that they had a resource. It used to be not too long ago that what happened in somebody's home happened in their home and it wasn't anybody else's business. And so we are breaking that barrier of silence and creating awareness where clients understand that there are resources out there for um, domestic violence victims. And so we take very seriously at Family Haven awareness and education. And that is a, a piece of our programming for not only victims of domestic violence, but we also run a program called Date Strong that is offered in the schools and we offer it in other nonprofits here in the community 
that teaches, that talks about healthy dating relationships and allows people to recognize what the red flags are and what to do if you or your friend or your family is in a situation that's unsafe. And so we have received calls as a direct result of that program being taught in the school systems. We have received call, I have answered the crisis call myself when somebody said, my child took your class at their middle school and they said, we don't have to live like this anymore. So who do I talk to for help? That gives me chills. It, it's a very important part of what we do in the community is to raise awareness. And for, it, you know, one of the things that we struggle with because we're not allowed to give our location out and we have to be, I mean, confidentiality is, is of the most importance is how do you raise awareness when you can't have fluffy events or things inside your facility to show off your facility, or you can't do fundraisers at your facility. People can't ride by and say, hey, that's Family Haven. So we have, you know, how do you raise awareness while maintaining confidentiality? And I think we are doing a really good job of, of doing just that. And that is raising awareness without giving it the shelter location in our community. Do you think educating the the children or or teens that it it um, because oftentimes the parents I would think are worried or the mom it's g- generally probably moms are worried about their kids what the kids will think they don't want to break up the family or um, so for for this to be raised up through the kids and the awareness and and they bring it to the parent does that help the the mom to to feel more confident in her decision to to explore a change i do think so but i also want to say that our education program georgia's number one in teen dating violence and so it's important to us to make sure that that our children know that there are certain that you are not um, for it's important for our children to know the red flags in their own dating relationships. And we talk about that. That's what the program talks about. Um, a lot. And so one of the things that, you know, that we say to these kids is, or we ask these children is, if you find yourself in an unhealthy dating relationship, who do you tell? And overwhelmingly, we have found that their responses are, I will tell a friend. And that friend doesn't necessarily know how to help them. Right. But what they're not doing is telling a trusted adult. And so we are working very hard to make sure that that these kids know that if you or you or your friends find themselves in an unhealthy relationship, that you can you must talk to an adult. It's okay to tell an adult. Sometimes they're embarrassed. They don't want to tell that they've gotten themselves in this in this relationship or that. 
their boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't make them feel, you know, they don't feel comfortable, but they don't know how to end it. So they don't talk about it to anybody. And they need that trusted adult, that school counselor, that teacher, that um, youth leader. They need that person in their life to be able to talk to them about these situations and they need to know it's safe to go to them. Well, I can imagine that is a critical part of the um, education is the teens. And it's great to see that you are um, reaching young people early in their life where, you know, rather than them getting in years and years and years into relationships and not knowing what a healthy one looks like. Well, the hope is, is that one day we won't have to have shelters, that we will eradicate domestic violence and, you know, also taking the time to, to dispel some of the myths, some of the things that that doesn't happen to, to anybody I know, that doesn't happen in my little world. Um, that only happens to certain types of people. That's, that is all, those are all myths. We, domestic violence knows no boundaries. It, the rich, the poor, every race, every religion, domestic violence hits every one of them. Right. And, you know, I am asked all the time, why do they stay? Why don't they just leave? As if that's an easy answer. And I can tell you there are multiple reasons why victims don't leave. It could be that they don't know any different. It could be, and that this is their normal. It could be that they have been told for so long that they'll never make it on their own, that nobody else would ever love them, that they're not worthy of having a life without the violence, that they ask for the violence, and so they start to believe it. It could be for medical reasons they don't want to leave. It could be that their insurance is through that, through the abuser. It could be lack of finances. There are lots of reasons why. And one of the things that um, when I first started working here, I thought long and hard about what my why would be because I've not experienced um, in my own life, I have not experienced um, being with a partner that was abusive. And so I had to think about what would make me stay. I have an education. So that would not be a barrier. I have a good job. So I, I think I could make it on my own. I certainly am resourceful. So I could figure that out. But what, why would I stay? And I have three children. And one of them is six feet tall and 200 pounds. And he has the sweetest baby face you could imagine. And if I didn't have a safe place to go, that he was not welcome with me because he is looks like a man and a, he's a child in a man's body, then I would not, I would not leave him behind. And so whether or not that barrier is truly there, that would be something that I would definitely 
um, that would definitely make my decision about staying is if I couldn't bring him with me wherever it is that I was going. I love how that you have thought about it from your personal situation to try to put yourself in, in, you know, the position of these women or families and try to, you know, decide what, or, or try to try to think through where they're coming from and what would make you stay. I think that, I think that is great that you've done that for the different. So you talked about there's different types of violence. Can you uh, touch on some of those and, you know, what, what they look like? So, so of course you would know physical violence, but what else? So of course, and a lot of times people don't realize that the relationship is abusive because if they're not hitting you, and they're not leaving marks, then they can't, it can't possibly be abuse. But that's not true. Um, I talked about abuse being about power and control. And so there are lots of ways you can be controlled. There may be, um, of course, mental abuse. There uh, financial abuse. There could be... But do you mean like withholding funds, uh, withholding money? It could be withholding funds. It could be not allowing your partner to work. It could be that your partner is expecting you to bring your paycheck to them and that they have complete control over the paycheck. I will share a story about a former client who um, came in and we she you know, beautiful client, two, two beautiful children and appeared to be very well put together. And so we asked, not because we're going to charge her for any services because everything that our clients get while they're here is free. We, we asked her if she had access to any accounts because she left during the day and while her spouse was at work. And she said, I have access to one account, but it has no money in it. The only reason we asked is because if she had an opportunity to have some cash of her own that she could get out, mm-hmm. then that would be a good thing. And she said, it has no money in it. He keeps $5 in it. And so <clears throat> she didn't look like somebody that would only have $5 in her account. So we asked her to expand on that a little bit. And she shared with us that she was given, there was one, there were several accounts in the household and she had access to one. And he would, if she needed to go to the store or if the children needed things or something needed to be taken care of, then he would put enough money in the account to cover the said expense. And after she had gone to the store, she had handled the need, she had to come back not only with the receipt, but with proof of that she did not pull any cash out. And then if she spent, if he put $100 in and she only spent 50, he would pull the other 45 out so that there was only enough to keep the account open. Well. And she would, so that is the act, she only had access to $5. So that is a way that he knew she was not going to leave because she didn't have any resources to take care of her and her children. I 
mean, you know, there she did experience some physical abuse, but she also a big piece of her why is how am I going to feed my children? And so one of the things I think about when I start my day is that I don't ever know what I'm going to be confronted with. And it's not my job to determine the why. What my job is as the director of Family Haven is to empower these women to find ways to break the barriers for their why. So my staff works really hard at making sure that when you come into shelter, you are no longer a victim. You are working on survivorship. And how do you break those barriers? How do you support the family or the mom the, the, so that they start building this strength not to go back? So statistics will tell you that they'll go back seven times before they ever finally make the break of an abusive relationship. And they may not go back to the, to the same abuser, but they may find themselves in another abusive relationship. Seven times? Seven times. And, and to you and I, that may sound like a lot. But we're working with clients who have had sometimes a lifetime of being told they're not worthy or being controlled. And so that's what is normal for them. Right. And so how do we break those? How do we change that mindset? We meet clients where they are and we work with clients. Not everybody comes to us in the same place. Some may already have a job. Some may already have a car. Some of us, some clients come to us with none of that. But what they're going to do here in their short time is they're going to accumulate tools that will help them, whether it's their first time out or their last time out of an abusive relationship. It is going to allow them to handle their situation a little differently and to hopefully build a little confidence and be empowered to, to have a voice of their own. And so we work on those things. What are some of the tools you're trying to give them? So sometimes it could be as simple as the resource for childcare. Hmm. Sometimes it can be the courage to go to counseling. Sometimes it can be, getting out and getting that first job. Sometimes it's um, start to build the confidence in themselves that they can begin to believe they can rely on who they are and to understanding that they are um, worthy of living a life without violence. How has COVID impacted women and or your work where people might, you know, can escape to going to the store or, you know, going to work and, you know, they don't have to live in the household, you know, 24 hours or be in the household 24 hours a day. What are some of the things that you've seen since, you know, give it March, you know, maybe March that 
that, that you all are trying to help with? Or, I mean, is there is there anything that stands out about COVID? I'm sure there is. So I think that for us, um, our numbers have increased. Right. One of the things that we have seen is that sometimes we will receive a phone call, a crisis call, an assessment will be done. We determine that we have the space and it's safe for them to come into our shelter and we develop the plan with the client. Tell them they're um, accepted into shelter. This is how you get to us. And they never make the last, the next phone call that they're going to, that they're at the police department. So we are unable to, we're unable to call a victim back because they may or may not have a safe phone for us to call or may not be in a safe place. And so there are a lot of times when um, we don't know what happened to that client and why that client didn't show up. Um, and so that always leaves us wondering. Some of the clients that we've seen because there was no outlet for themselves or the abuser, by the time they get to us, the severity of the abuse is worse. Mm -hmm. um, once they get to shelter, some of the struggles that we've seen is that, well, when it first started and the lockdowns were happening, that we it was hard for them to find a job. Yeah. So imagine living in shelter a 90 day program and you can't find a job. What are your options? So we had to look at extensions for a lot of clients to make sure that they were able to build the resource, have enough time to build the resources um, to move forward. Child care was a big issue. Maybe they could get to work, but daycares weren't available for them to to have their children cared for properly during the day. One of the things we've noticed too is that we work real closely with some with some counselors in the community and they may not be as readily available to help clients as they are when when things are not locked down. Some clients need a face-to-face. -face. It's harder to do the telemedicine over over a computer and having the space and the privacy to be able to do that while you're in shelter is also difficult. If some, so if a listener it suspects that someone is in a situation that is unsafe for them or their children, do you have any recommendations of how to not be intrusive, but help them? Like, what can we do? Like if you know of someone or you suspect someone might be in a situation that's not safe for them, what can you do? So the first, th the first thing I want to say about that is build a relationship with that person so that they know they can come to you without judgment. This is a very private part of their lives and they don't want to share it with the world. Right. And they need to know that they have somebody safe to go to that will not pass judgment when they 
when they tell when they finally build up the courage to tell somebody. And so it's very important to listen. It's also very important to understand that it's not your life. And it is not your, you don't get to control the situation. And that they need to do this on their time. Right. And they need your love and support throughout that whole process. Again, we don't know what their why is. And it's not our job to, to decide that for them. Our job as advocates and as friends, as community leaders, is to be that person that is safe for them to come to and to know what resources are available for them so that when they do make that decision to leave, that you have the information they need to move forward, to get out. Yeah, that's great advice. That's really great advice. Well, without um, saying anything, um, you know, of course, you know, you would never give anything, any specifics, but do you have a situation that has been a success story or, you know, kind of just some overall success stories where you see people have, you know, gotten out of the cycle of violence and, and been able to go on to build, you know, a new and, and, and better life for them and their families? Absolutely. Um, this job would be really hard if we didn't have those success stories that we can go back on. Um, but, you know, there's always that client that, that you connect with immediately, that you can tell they really, really want to make a change in their life for themselves and for their children. And uh, we have had... You know, clients who have worked very hard through the 90-day program and then moved into our transitional housing where they can live there for another uh, year um, with a safety net. They, they're not in shelter, so they have some added responsibilities, but they have us as a safety net. And then gone on to get, to finish their education and to... Um, get a good job and then you know we're all a little tearful when they leave um, that transitional housing after being there a year and um, but they're ready to fly and so those are the stories that we that we bank on to get us through the tough days um, and we do see that quite often that's great to hear well, and so we were talking about the um, the area that you focus, Family Haven here focuses in. If um, our listeners who are all over, uh, we've got global listeners on all over the U.S. Um, what advice do you have if anyone needs um, help in their own local areas, and or if someone is looking to try to help support? Um, you know, an organization like yours, like what are some things that you need probably other than, you know, financial support? So um, one of the things that I tell you, I, you know, of course we always need financial help and sure. there won't be a domestic violence shelter 
anywhere that will tell you they don't need those financial needs met. Um, it's expensive to um, house a family uh, or a single woman um, in our in our programs. So, of course, we need the financial donations, but you know the things that you don't think about that we take for granted that are in our homes or we have access to immediate, you know, whenever we run to Walmart or the grocery store and that we use all the time. Our clients use a lot of, and you know, you think about all the things that you would have in your pantry, the hair products, the hygiene products, the toilet paper, paper towels, um, all of those things that we go through a ton of in a house of 21 beds wow. that most of us take for granted that it's no big deal. I'll just run and go get some more. Our clients don't necessarily have the ability to go get more um, when they're with us. And we, you know, we have outreach clients that are still struggling sometimes to make ends meet. And so if they need something, we help them out with those various donations. So I think those are the things, the key things that, that shelters need. Um, we, we typically don't take travel size shampoos and conditioners because they're with us for an extended period of time. And we don't want them to have to, um, we don't want them to have to keep coming back for more. They can, so they don't want to have to keep asking for, for the, a refill. So it's better to, to let them have a full size shampoo. Of course, of course. And that's, um, um, you know, I think that anyone that, um, finds a shelter in their lo own local area, um, and they could potentially do some research that probably most of the shelters would need very much, um, the same thing that you all do here with Family Haven. Yes. I mean, th those are things people need all the time. It could be, um, you know, activities for the children. It could be, every shelter is going to have specific needs that they need, but I would research my local shelter and I would call them and ask them, what do you need? And I tell you, if you can only give five shampoos one week, we will gladly take them Sure. with a smile on our face mm -hmm. because that's five shampoos we don't have to buy. Um, and we can spend resources on something that the clients need whether it may be car maintenance or um, Uber transportation, it frees up money for other resources. Sure. Well, the work that you're doing and the work um, that all of those that are part of Family Haven is doing to help people be able to 
have a safe place to turn to and get resources that help them get out of the um, the cycle of violence that they're in. The work that you're doing is so important. And um, it's what Stories Connect People podcast stands for, people that are doing great things for others and making the world a better place. And um, you are absolutely doing that. And I love your heart for helping others that started young uh, in, your, um, in your life. It's uh, really great. So I want to thank you, Amy, for being a guest and sharing your story and the story of Family Haven today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Stories Connect People podcast. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe, listen, rate, or share with others. I look forward to being with you next time on Stories Connect People podcast.